You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Today on PTO, we're 100 episodes in and taking a walk down memory lane. That's what I call pro talk. When you really don't know the answer, you just make it up. My rut is that I am in a rut. To get the pilot of Red Arrow going. There's really a way to skip class. I want to say, hey, those boys right there are entertainers. There you <laughs> go. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said on this podcast. Alex Rutledge here with American Roots Outdoors TV. Hey, this is Lee and Tiffany Lukowski from the Crest TV. Hi, I'm Don Higgins. This is Jeff Lindsay. Hey, everybody, this is Mark Dury with Dury Outdoors. Hey, this is Craig Fitz with Trained Assassins TV. You're listening to Dave and JP on Pro Talk Outdoors, the craziest two I know. Hey folks, it's another episode of Pro Talk Outdoors. We're sitting in a different room in the house and what uh, is most likely going to end up being a studio with hopefully some fitting decor. What do you think? The, the scenery's a little better in here. It is. It is better. We got the outdoor theme in here, but we have no desk like we normally have. No, we're you know kind of doing the makeshift thing, but you know, we've got uh we got a nice turkey fan in here Couple. and uh we get that beautiful velvet buck that uh you killed over there, Mr. Clean. Yeah. Came from Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Willis over here looking over my shoulder. Not not too big a slouch. And then uh, well, we ought to have another one before too long from this past season, the ghost. And then uh, got a hog that's coming in here as well. Yeah. yeah. The heck did I do there? Turn my mic. There we go. I'm back. <clears throat> yeah, turn your mic on. You're a professional here. <laughs> Let's go. Amateur hour. But, uh, man, you know, just speaking of things that end up on the wall or whatever, obviously that's not why any of us hunt, uh, or at least – you and I, you know, that's not why we're out there. It's it's an added bonus, but this time of year, there's a different kind of hunting for those antlers. You know, the the shed hunting that's really just taken over the outdoor industry. You see it on social media more and more every year. Anyway, so <clears throat> I've been at it for about 30 years or so, and um, and I've always went out after some sheds. Not much year, you know, years ago. I just really started getting more serious about it probably the last five or six years. And but you you never heard about it. Nobody really talked about it. And it's probably because the guys that were successful were out there just scooping up a bunch of sheds, and nobody really you know was out there looking. And on public ground too. Yeah, yeah, going out on public ground. But you're right. There's just such a movement now. Everybody's out shed hunting and and uh, posting pics of their sheds that they find. And and it's really you know deer hunting is a 365 day a year passion for a lot of guys like us. And um, you know it's it's just something that is. To me, I love to mushroom hunt. You know, the reward there is you get to eat good mushrooms. You know, I love to shed hunt because, you know, a lot of times you'll find sheds of bucks that you didn't even know existed. You know, you didn't get pictures of them for whatever reason. Uh, Maybe you do get sheds of deer that you had pictures of, but, you know, I've had experiences where I found sheds of deer that I didn't know existed and then harvested those deer the following year, and then you've got a keepsake there. Sure. You know, I think there's a lot can be learned from it. And I, I haven't decided, you know, I've only been at this a few years now. I'm going into, what, season five, four, five. This will be my fifth season this coming yeah. fall. But, uh, you know, after four years of, of deer hunting here, I've learned that 
I'm way better at patterning <laughs> the deer with the antlers on their head than I am with the antlers off. And I, I, don't, I don't know if it's just that I'm bad at shed hunting or if the places I'm looking aren't, you know, really places that I'm going to find sheds. And, and I don't mean I'm not looking in bedding areas. I think my problem is the properties I have access to don't typically have many buck beds on them. You know, I, I have travel corridors more than anything. Yeah, you have you have a great area to hunt, you know, in November you know, bucks cruising, checking for does, you know, and and it's one of those things, when you're talking shed hunting, it's almost like you have to have a vision for it, like, uh, once you see your first shed, once you find your first shed, you mm-hmm. kind of get dialed in, and you can find more, uh, and it kind of makes a person wonder how many you actually walk over and just don't see whenever you're out there shed hunting, because it's just, you have to have a specific type vision for it, and I can't even really describe it, but um, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> was out shed hunting this past weekend with uh, somebody that had never really had never found a shed before, never. Um, and you know, she found her first shed. But the thing that that she remarked on is, she said, "Well, I bet this is kind of like mushroom hunting. Once you find your first shed, you can probably find more." And and, and it is because you get dialed into what you need to look for. It's kind of like you don't look for in the woods when you're deer hunting. You don't look for the entire deer. You look for, you know, a tail flick, or you look for an ear moving around, or you look for just an antler moving. You know, that's how you spot a deer. You don't look for the entire deer. If you're looking for an entire deer, you're not going to see very many deer in the woods. <laughs> that's a good point. Very good point. Look at it more from a mac- macro perspective, essentially, than a, than a micro. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting prospect getting out there and finding them because some people are just walking bedding areas. Some people are walking where they think the deer are traveling. Me, I'm walking runs, and I walk into places that I promise I'm never going in ever again other than this one time to see if I can learn about a bed. Well, I did that over the weekend. I learned of a lot of great doe bedding areas and nothing that I could identify as a place that a buck was bedding, for sure. I actually found fewer rubs than I expected to find in an area. It was an area that you and I are familiar with on on the corner of that property where you and I have found a shed before. Right. There were far fewer rubs in that area this year than there's ever been before, and that, I don't know why. Well, that may have something to do with hunting pressure because I think your neighbor is kind of. Well, I found a new stand that is yeah, right on the property line. Yeah, kind of honing mean, in is, there. A it is bit. on top. It's a tower stand. It's so much on the property line. He didn't have a tree, so he has a tower there. Yeah, so I think that might be part of your issue right there with that area not being used as much. But you know, I guess my method, and I'm I'm by far not an expert when it comes to shed hunting. I you know, if I find over 10 sheds in a season, I, I consider it a really good year. Um, I found three this year so far, I think, maybe four. I can't remember. Anyway, three or four so far this year. I've only been a couple times. But my method, I usually go out, and first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to find out where the deer are eating. You know, mm-hmm. if you can find out where they're eating right now, you know they're going to be they're slaves to their stomach this time of year. They're going to spend a good amount of time. You know, in those fields, if, you know, I walk the field edges, I walk the field as much as possible. And then from there, I kind of break out, and then I'll start walking the perimeter of the field, and I'll start finding some runs that are going in and out of the field. And usually the heaviest runs are not the best. Heaviest runs usually, you know, more does are using those, some younger deer. I'll try to get some smaller runs, you know, that that I think maybe a mature buck might approach the field from. And then you try to locate bedding areas that, that are close to that. I I like to look in, you know, near where there's green briar thickets, you know, uh, south-facing slopes here. A lot of people talk about south-facing slopes. I think this year it's not as much of a key here in southern Indiana where we're at. Because, the problem is we don't have that many slopes. <laughs> well, we don't have a lot of slopes for one, but number two, we haven't had really brutal weather, you know, and the south-facing slopes, you know, are usually a company uh, north winds and cold temperatures. You know, deer get on those south-facing slopes to, to get the sunlight on them a little bit more to get warmer and then to utilize that north wind over, you know, for their bedding location. And that's just not been the case for us so far this year. We've had a lot of very mild temperatures and not a whole lot of north winds. So, you know, they're they're not really bedding in those areas as much on the south-facing slopes here in southern Indiana. And it's probably different in different states, I'm sure, but where we're at, it's just not been a key so far. So, I'm not really looking at that areas, those areas as much right now, but you know, definitely trying to find out where they're feeding first, and then travel corridors from feeding to bed, bed to feed, and then just going through as many uh, bedding areas as you can. 
Um, I'll tell you the sheds that I've found so far this year um, have been close to cedar trees, all of them. And, you know, you had sent that to me right as I had started my shed hunt this weekend, and that was the first place I looked, and I came up dry. But I want to go back to the thing you mentioned just a moment ago about, you know, where they're feeding. So this year on this particular farm, there was corn planted for the first time in, well, four... It's been, been a few years well, for sure. It, it, it? Well, it predates me. So if I have four seasons in, it was the first year in, in four years. <clears throat> right. You know, typically you're doing a bean-to-corn rotation, and that had not been the case in that area. So uh, I, I got to spend a little bit of time and maybe searched over a, a, maybe a quarter of that area where the corn was. But I just have a gut feeling that there's one laying out there right now. Just, just, yeah. just well, right now, somewhere in that corn, because that was a heavy bedding area when you know it was up. Obviously, since then, I think it's just been a place to to feed, but it's an area the deer are familiar with. Yeah, and without a doubt, I mean, it, it's really hard to spot a shed in picked corn. <laughs> oh my it's God. almost impossible. I mean, one thing that I I would like to do, um, and we haven't had the weather to be able to do it, but I would love to be able to just to take the side by side out and just ride up and down those rows with a couple guys on the side-by-side go real slow and just And look that at was going to be my question to you today was I think that's the best method. Absolutely, it's the best method, you know, and, and just go slow, take your time, and, and I think you could pick up a few sheds. But here's the thing. It's been so wet. It's been raining and raining and raining. We've had flood after flood around here, and you just can't risk going in and, and screwing up a farmer's field. You know no. I mean? And we haven't had enough freezing temperatures to really go out there and get a nice cold day where you could kind of cruise up and down through there and not worry about breaking the ground so right we're just waiting on good weather to do that and, and frost seeding is something that has to occur and oh, I, yeah. I did do that in that plot back there and uh, i think it worked out pretty well but we'll, we'll see you know i won't know till late march early april how how good it really was i'm sure yeah i'm sure it'll be fine you know it's it's we're in that time frame where they're still even though we're getting mild temperatures during the day a lot of nights, you know, you're getting that hard frost or just a slight freeze, and, you know, that's what you want, that freezing and, and then thawing process, and that just helps the seed get in the soil a little bit better. And, uh, boy, the turkey's going to love that. Well, the, I do have plenty of those, so looking forward to that as well. But, you know, uh, it, all this time of transition that we feel right now, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun to talk about sheds and turkey season and, and frost seeding, but uh, it's kind of a time of reflection for us and well it is isn't it it really is this is around the time uh that we started all this three years ago yeah yeah it is it's uh and, and what a ride it's been i mean i um i was thinking earlier today um about just some past guests that we've had and it's hard to just name a few of them but because we've had so many just blockbuster cream of the crop top of the line you know professionals in, in both fishing and hunting that, that I've just admired some of them since I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and a story I've told on the podcast a few times. And, and, uh, and it, to me, I, it's one I'll probably never forget is just working my day job one day and I'm in my office and I get a phone call and it's a Florida number, which is not uncommon because I'm in the trucking business. And, um, so I answer it and I thought somebody was joking with me, but I recognize the voice. Hi Dave, this is Roland Martin. <laughs> I mean, that was freaking awesome to have Roland Martin call me. And I'm I'm just going around the office on speakerphone like, yeah, you know, they, I'm talking to Roland Martin. Be quiet over there, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, we've just had so many top-of-the-line guests that um, it, it's been a real pleasure to be able to do what we do and talk to the folks that we, we've been able to talk to. And, and, man, I know I've learned a lot, but I know you have learned a ton talking to For these sure. guys. For sure. You know, it was it was a... A fun idea that we had, and you know, I was just really getting into the hunting side of things. Been fishing my whole life, but uh, you know, just getting exposed to more things in the in the outdoors that I, I didn't realize that were going to be such a, a a big part of my life three four years later. And I, I think having this podcast as an avenue to learn and uh, have a lot of just great conversations and meet people, network really springboarded and, and helped me with what was going to be a steep learning curve. You know, most guys that are hunting and, and having success that are my age at, at 27, 28 years old are guys that have been doing it almost 20 years now because they started when they were 7, 8, 9. Right, when they were little kids. And, and when you start at, at 24 years old, 23 years old, it's uh, 
you know, that's, big learning curve. It's a learning curve. So, you know, starting at 23, 24 and having this to spring back off of was a, a huge help. But yeah, I mean, just, just like Roland Martin, I mean, there's been a, a thousand and one things we've had that stand out to me. Uh, but why don't we play that Roland Martin one right now? Let's make it a greatest hits episode. Yeah, we might as well. A good time for reflection. We've, uh, you know, we've had a whole lot of episodes under our belt, and just snippets. We're not playing the full thing. Just snippets. Yeah, we'll just play a little part there. How about Roland Martin? He's a great American fisherman. He'll fish anywhere, anywhere there's water. Lord knows he'll be there. He's just like a gypsy, mighty hard to hold. Great American fisherman got fishing in his soul. Well, you mentioned versatility. You're a versatile guy yourself. Fish for every species, every place in the world. Is there any kind of applicable thing from one species, maybe way up the Pacific coast, that you could apply to somewhere, maybe well, even in the southeast U.S.? Everything is applicable when you think of the pattern situation, that exact set of water and cover conditions, whether it's a striped bass in the Chesapeake or largemouth bass in Stockton, California. You know, it, 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 everything has a water temperature zone, a water clarity thing, a, 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 a structure orientation, a, you know, something. There's a pattern situation with every game fish. And so, you just have to figure that out. You have to you have to really document what you see and what you know, what the conditions are, so that you can duplicate. If you happen to catch a fish, whether it's a walleye or a bass or, or a striped bass, and, and you just have to document those conditions and just look for other exact conditions. Like so, pattern you know, patterns the whole thing. You know, patterns the whole thing. Do you find that uh, those techniques that you use on, uh, say, Okeechobee? Some of those translate well on other lakes, um, or is it, you know, kind of more specific to down there in Okeechobee? No, bass are the same great game fish from Connecticut to California. I mean, if you take a bass that's spawning at 62 degrees on a, on a, on a gravel bank on the north, northeast corner, northeast corner of the lake, if it's warmer because of the prevailing trade winds, I don't care if it's a pond in Connecticut or a... Uh, or, or part of the, the Stockton River system in California. I mean, it's going to be it's, it's going to be the same exact scenario. Bass are the same great game fish, and they're going to have the same pattern conditions all over the country. You know, Roland Martin's been doing it forever. He's made an absolute career out of doing something that uh, I, uh, most guys, outdoors household name, would would want to do for a career. And he's Absolutely. done it in different ways. You know, both on the tournament field as well as you know, on the television side. But, uh, you know, another angler has had a pretty memorable moment on our show as well. And, and Andy Montgomery helped name this before it was a show at a seminar. But another guy that uh, we had on as a guest, Chad Morgan Taylor, and uh, he does pretty well in the bass circuit. Uh, you know, he, he's not winning every single tournament out there like somebody like a Kevin Van Dam who's really just absolutely kicking ass and taking names. But Chad does pretty darn well. And, uh, and his story he had. His story is just so remarkable. And it was something that hit home for me, especially at that time, because this podcast was still fairly new, which was not that long after I had gone through uh, you know, the, the toughest part of my life, losing my dad. And just him sharing a story in that regard about having a marshal on the back of his boat that made him do double, triple, quadruple takes because it was almost like... Uh, the reincarnation of his grandfather. And he said just that connection he felt with that marshal that day was incredible. And he performed really well with that marshal in the back of the boat. And it's just a really neat story, and it's still one of my favorites we've ever had on here. Mine too. Let's play that one. Now, the question is for you, Chad, what is the toughest time that Mother Nature has ever called upon you <laughs> when you're out doing your career gear here? Well, <laughs> how do you even answer something like that, right? Chad's like, Man, uh, there, I got to go. so many times that it has happened. So to pick one, it's extremely difficult. You know, I guess, um, I would guess probably the toughest time on the water is actually during competition when you have a camera guy in the boat with you and you have a crowd following. <laughs> that 
presents some major issues. So do you just get in like a happy place where you don't think about it? You no, you there's no <laughs> man at fifty. You can only be happy so long about that. <laughs> oh man, you know I'll be fifty this year, so like it's that. There's no, I don't even try. You know, I'm just like okay, let's just manage our deals here, and you know, keep it as minimal as possible. But uh, yeah, you know, you just what what ends up happening is you end up starting to to look for areas where you can. Only get one boat pointed into. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. The tightest little eddy you can find. I went back and uh, you know YouTube's great. You can watch all these tournaments. I've YouTube that that tournament, and man, that, you just didn't get a whole lot of coverage there because you came from behind, didn't you? I mean, what, what, did you have a cameraman on the boat with you that day? No, I didn't. And I had a GoPro camera. All I had was a GoPro camera with me. And the funny thing was. The thing was, was that day when I caught my second fish, I I boat flipped it, and I hit the GoPro camera, and it knocked it sideways on my console, and I didn't notice. And <laughs> so they couldn't use hardly any of the footage the GoPro had captured. And it was, um, you know, it was one of those, it was just one of those deals where, yeah, I mean, I was a little disappointed because I had the big stringer, you know, and and um and I did so well. But I was in like eighth or ninth going into that day, so you know they'll only put cameras on the first three or four guys typically, and that's what uh, that's what happened there. It wasn't you know you know nothing to do with bass, but I, be quite honest with you, that that whole situation like that right there just makes you fish more at ease, though. You know, and I I fished all day. That whole tournament, that last day especially, my bite was late, and it didn't happen until, it didn't start happening until noon that day. But from noon to 2 o'clock, I lit it up, and um, that was what was really nice. And, you know, the whole thing behind that, I want to just take a second here. My grandfather passed away whenever I was 17 years old, and we actually buried him on my 17th birthday. And, you know, obviously I miss him a great deal, and he was a great man, and uh, he did what he could, but he wasn't a fisherman. But uh, anyway, long story short, that morning, you know, when they assigned me my marshal, I show up at the ramp there at Cypress Bend, and I'm running late as usual. Me and Casey Ashley were both running real late. And so I was hurrying up trying to get the boat undone, and there was a gentleman. My marshal came up, and uh, – I never looked at him. I was trying to get the boat unstrapped and get it in the water and everything. And he said, uh, he said, uh, Chad, he said, I'm your marshal for today. And I, I swear to you, as I'm standing here, I thought that that was my grandfather. And when I turned around and looked at him, he reminded me exactly of him. And it was just a weird, surreal moment. And, and, and then later on that day, you know, he just kept standing back there and talking, and he was an older gentleman. He was in his late 70s, as I remember my grandfather. And when I caught my first one, it was about a four-pound. He just looked at me. He said, son, we're about to start it. And from that moment on, you know, it was just an unreal fishing trip. The next two hours was unreal. You know, Chad? And, uh, uh, so it was, uh, it was, as you can tell, it, it, it still touches me. It's just like, golly. Well, you know, Chad, that that uh, that story actually means a, a whole lot to me. Um, I I just lost my dad, actually, in November, and uh, you know, I I haven't even really quite got over it. You know, I don't know that I ever will, but we didn't share any passion more than what we shared over fishing. And uh, Dave and I, we went down and we fished a, a Bassmaster Open together last year. Well, not together, but as co-anglers, uh, because that was my dad's dream, and and he was too sick to do it, and. Uh, now, I, I just really appreciate you sharing that story, man. That means a lot to me, especially, uh, you know, right now where I'm at. And, and I'm going to Toledo, a, a big reason, just because of Dad. He he always wanted to catch some big hog and, and never got to a lake really quite good enough to do it. So I, I appreciate you sharing that, man. Yeah, actually, I, I got cold chills when you told me that story. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, – I'm sorry to hear about your father, obviously. And um, But, uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know that they're – it just goes to show you, you know, that, um, there, you know, our loved ones are always still with us and in some way, shape or form. I really truly believe that. And that day proved it to me. When, you know, when I told my mom, she, you know, she would, 
<laughs> we just both broke down in tears because I mean it was it was one of those deals where all day long I just kept looking back behind me, you know, at him, and just knowing that that was there was a connection there. But uh, yeah, anyway, I hope that uh, it was a great experience, you know, obviously for me, and um, I, I I hope that uh, you know everyone gets to experience something similar to that because it was uh, <laughs> it was something. So Ch- Chad was a great guest, and he's a guy. I still shoot him text messages every once in a while, wishing him luck. And, Super uh, guy. And uh, you know, if he had a good good tournament or a good day, I'll say, hey buddy, you know, keep it up, kind of thing. But you know, another guy that we've developed a relationship with, and, and a close one, you know, close friends. Yes, with- I, I would say even more so than just being somebody that we've admired and, and had on the show. He's become a very good friend. Is Don Higgins? Yeah, and, and just a good man all the way around, but. I mean, a guy that's a big buck slayer. Oh, incredible. I mean, his resume is as long as, well, yeah, as long as it could possibly get. (laughs) It Uh, it grows all the time. And it it does. And um, he's taught us a lot of uh, great things on and off the air. But one of my favorite things that that he's said in both places, and he says them in seminars, and he says them on his blog, it's the most important thing I think he can teach, and it's something that has really hit home with me probably more in the last year than maybe it ever has – because of our mistakes, is the importance of betting versus food and having the right ratio of both. You know, the the idea of a food plot has been so romanticized over the last several years among outdoorsmen, as it should be, because they're important. Yeah. They help the deer herd. But uh, it's that old adage, too much of a good thing isn't necessarily a good thing. Uh, you know, because if you think about it, what good does food do you living on the street if you've got nowhere to sleep or live or be safe? You know, it's it's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs for anybody that's ever taken a psychology I have class. No idea what you're talking about there. It's it's the the need for safety is the very first thing. Safety and shelter is the most important, and I think the same is true for deer. And Don has mentioned several times that if you don't have good bedding area, good sanctuary on you or right near to your property, what does the food matter? Yeah, so let's uh, let's play a little snippet from Don here. Tell us a little bit about why you were so confident that you were going to have the ability to to uh, to have a good chance of killing. I don't remember what percentage you put on it, but it was high. It was like eighty or ninety percent. You felt like you were going to be able to harvest Smoky. But can yep. you walk us through why you felt like that you had such high odds on that deer? Well, the. The more I've hunted mature bucks, the more I realize that each one's got its own personality. Um, you know, there's some that uh, your odds of killing them are a whole lot better in the morning than the evening, and, and vice versa. Some of them you're never going to shoot them in the morning, but your best odds are going to be the evening, and they just got different quirks. You know, some of them it's going to be midday only. Uh, they just don't move at those peak hours when the hunters are in the woods. And and then, uh, you know, some bucks have a big range. Some bucks have a small home range. There's just a lot of variables that make each one of them individual. And Smokey was a buck that uh, he would move in daylight because he had a very small home range and he felt safe there. He lived on a property uh, on my home farm, actually, uh, right where I live. So and he very, very seldom ventured from it. Uh, I've got trail cameras, you know, on neighboring properties and such, and he was just very, very seldom off of my property, and he had a core area that was pretty small, and he didn't, uh, you know, a lot of bucks will shift their range about the time they they shed velvet and, and move a little bit, but he never did. He was in the same spot year-round, and I just felt that, you know, I was the only one hunting that property, and the odds were stacked in my favor, really, just because of his personality and the fact that I was the only one that uh, could hunt and had total control over the property. How important is that characteristic? And, I, I mean, Dave is experiencing something like this right now where, you know, a, a big deer's presence can almost make people do some crazy things. How important is that autonomy to really control the property that is homing this big deer? Well, it, it's pretty important, really. But, uh, you know, the buck's personality is probably about as important as well. But, you know, in regards to owning the or having control of the property, you know, most hunters, even really good deer hunters, most of them don't don't realize what it takes to kill the big mature bucks, the older bucks. And I really think that's what holds a lot of guys back. They are such good deer hunters that they're not willing to, or it's harder for them to, to switch 
gears a little bit and, and do things differently for mature bucks. Things have worked. The things that they have done have worked so well to put other deer on the ground that they don't want to change. They're they're so reluctant to change that it keeps them from from tagging the mature bucks. But you know, back to your question, it, it's pretty important. It, I mean, it's real important. Uh, you know, just one wrong move on the wrong buck can can totally ruin your chances of ever getting him. You know, you know what's ironic there about what Don had to say. He, he's talking more about cover and instead of food, mm-hmm. and the guy owns a food plot seed <laughs> company. You know, well, it just goes to show he's not looking to line his pockets. He's no. looking to help people. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and not only is the food plot stuff a resource for people, but so is good information. So he's he's treating those as equal parts, and and I can appreciate that. Absolutely. You know, another guy that's got a lot of great information, Bill Winky of Midwest Whitetail. That was a very memorable podcast there because, you know, I think you and I both, um, after we ended that conversation with Bill, we, we were kind of looking at each other like, man, that, you know, it makes complete and total sense. And he did a great job putting it into layman's terms on exactly when is a good time to move in. You right. know, he talked about those three green lights. Yeah, yeah, it's not one determining factor. It's really a series of three that he'll go through and check. Uh, and I'm going to let him explain it. Yep, sounds good. Here's Bill Winky. Well, the the it's always the biggest challenge, I think, that we face. Uh, just having that conversation with some of the interns in the office today, and they were wired up and, and, and as excited as I've ever seen young people. And I had to slow them down and, and remind them that, that – uh, Deer hunting is a marathon; it's not a sprint. Uh, so you just got to be careful, I think, on those first few weeks. That's where people make mistakes with their enthusiasm. Uh, you know, I'm with you. I mean, I love the you know getting out in the woods and and <clears throat> excuse me, feeling that wind in my face and being up in a tree and all that stuff. But uh, if you don't have uh, an advantage that you're playing, you can do more harm than good by diving right in on your best spots right away. So. I guess my my advice, excuse me, <clears throat> my advice is just have a, a little caution going into it and look for uh, certain green lights. And uh, you know, I, I will talk about there's there's three three things that I use as a green light uh, to kick me off and get me serious about chasing a buck. And and uh, I kind of throw it back to you guys, and and you know, you can you can ask me to to go through these one at a time or however you want to do it, but you know, I don't want to dominate the whole conversation here. Oh, no, I think, obviously, people are going to want to listen to you, not us. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, why uh, we have you on the show. <laughs> but so, so, yeah, I guess, yeah, if you would start off, you know, uh, um, what, what's green light number one? I mean, what are you looking for, I guess, in early season, October, uh, the first week or so? I mean, what exactly are you doing running trail cameras? What kind of plans do you put in place? And what is that green light trigger you talked about? Yep, so the – the the whole dynamic of hunting whitetails has changed in the past 12 to 15 years with the trail cameras. Um, in the old days, I probably would have climbed into a tree stand on an oak ridge that had acorns dropping and, you know, hope for the best. <clears throat> Excuse me. And sometimes that works out, but you can also bump deer that aren't moving in daylight uh, by doing that. So you basically make it harder to kill that deer at any point during the season because you put pressure on them at a time when they just aren't killable. Um, so, uh, so now with the trail cameras, the first the most obvious thing I look for is daylight movement on the cameras. So if I've got cameras in good locations, you know, watching uh, maybe mock scrapes or trail crossings, or in some cases I, I'll have the camera on a time lapse or field scan mode sitting in the corner of a small food plot or the back end of a larger field. Uh, the, in that mode, I can get pictures maybe for the last hour of daylight. Uh, I, I generally don't worry about the mornings, early season, but it's not a bad idea, I suppose, to to kind of track what's going on in the mornings too. Uh, as soon as I start seeing daylight movement patterns from any buck that is one I would like to hunt, I go for it right away. Uh, so trigger number one is when the cameras are telling you that one of the bucks that you would like to hunt is moving during the day. And it can be as little as you know, one daylight photo accompanied with, you know, a, a reasonable number of, of other photos of that buck, you know, on the verge of daylight. And I'm not saying it's impossible to get a, a morning daylight picture. Uh, there's a whole lot harder to hunt in the mornings during the early season. We can talk about that later. But 
so I'm really focusing more on the on the evening side of, of the day and uh, uh, so I mean that's that's trigger number one and uh, well can uh, I hold, can I ask a question on that right now uh, before you go to trigger number two how often are you checking those trail cameras I'm on a three-day cycle generally because I want to have I don't want to be in there every day but I want to be on a on a current enough uh, uh, update rate that I know what's happening in the area quickly enough that I can act on it. Uh, you know, in theory, you should be checking every single day, and I suppose if you've got cameras that you can 100% totally get to without any deer knowing that you're coming and going, you know, maybe it, maybe that's possible. But you know, I generally will take a four-wheeler, sometimes my truck, and uh, I don't try to be uh, super sneaky about it. I get right in there, check the camera, get right out, and let the deer think that I'm, you know, out checking my food plot or whatever. You know, it doesn't, it, you do that during the middle of the day, and uh, the deer take it as normal human activity, uh, especially if, if there's a certain amount of that type of activity in the area. Uh, you know, I might even fire up a chainsaw or something. You're not really sneaking past them. Uh, but they're not necessarily afraid either because what you're doing isn't, you know, it's it's not a, a something that, that surprises them or catches them off guard. Uh, so keep that in mind. If the deer are more or less conditioned to a certain type of human activity, just take advantage of that and incorporate that into your process of checking your cameras. Um, so like I said, three days, in, and uh, I can usually gather enough information in three days that, that I can make my next move based on that. And right now I've got a buck on the farm that I feel like I could probably kill right off, right off the bat. Um, I'm not going to hunt him right away just because I don't want to necessarily fill my tag right away, you know, which is kind of the, the ironic part. You know, we get all excited about the season being here, but you don't really want to fill your tag immediately. You know, you kind of want to have a little bit of a hunting season. Um, but but he's one that has been showing a lot of daylight activity on the cameras. He's very predictable. He's an old deer, not a real high-scoring deer, but old. And as they get old, they sometimes really start to close down on their home ranges, and that's what this guy's doing. I mean, he's literally living in one little small area, and he's out in the daylight almost every day, um, you know, a very highly killable buck. Uh, so once I, I really feel like, you know, I'm ready, I'll, I'll start going after him. Uh, if he scored a really high score, I'd probably worry about it a lot more and get after him right away. But um, so anyway, that's just an example of, of of that process. He's the only one on the farm right now that I'm aware of that would be an opening day candidate. Um, so that's that's the one example I've got of trigger number one. So what about trigger number two? What what are you looking for there? Okay, cold fronts. Uh, so if you've got bucks that you're aware of, but they just aren't moving during the day, uh, the Typically, when, when we see them show their first daylight activity is on a cold front in October. Uh, so, I mean, granted, they're going to be out during the day in, in August and maybe even early September. But when it comes to actually during the hunting season, uh, we'll see that, that first glimpse of daylight activity around those cold fronts. So even though you may not have a daylight pattern on that buck, you know where he's living, and you've got a nice cold front coming in, uh, go hunt that cold front and hope for the best, uh, and, and hunt in places where you've you've gotten maybe uh, borderline, not quite daylight, but not, you know, 2.30 in the morning uh, type trail camera pictures of that deer, and, and you're probably not too far from where he's bedded if you're getting, you know, borderline daylight pictures. Uh, that cold front should be enough to get him out and, and moving a little bit earlier in the evening. So for, for that trigger number two, are you thinking more like transition zones between a feeding and bedding area or... Are you just thinking the best possible wind direction location? Well, the you know for for me, uh, our farm is broken up with lots of of uh, small fields scattered all over the place. So I'm usually looking for one of these little small clearings, and, and it's it would be what you would probably call a staging area, food plot, or what you're calling a transition area. I don't like going in there. On, on this is private land now, and I don't like going in there on their beds. You know, I tend to be very conservative with respect to that. If it was public land, I'd probably be a little bit more aggressive and, and maybe start to attack their bedding areas a little bit more with these cold fronts. But, you know, time is on my side. This is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, so I'm not going to play all my cards right away. Uh, I'm going to 
I'm going to still continue to be conservative in my approach, but I am going to start hunting that deer with the cold front, but I'm not going to go right in on top of him. I'm going to let him come out. And, and typically what that means is you're, you know, if he's feeding on acorns, you know, it's a little bit trickier because a lot of times they can bed and feed in about the same place. But if they're coming out to a little small clover plot or maybe even some little openings, you know, on, on the fringes of the timber, uh, those are the places where I'd be set up when that cold front comes through. It's still feeding patterns at this point. Um, right. You know, once you get towards the tail end of October, then everything kind of changes on what we're looking for. But right now it's still the evening patterns are still revolving around food. So what about trigger number three? Okay, so trigger number three is, is the rut. So, you know, you, you get into October 25th, this kind of my start date of trigger number three, and then I sort of don't worry about everything else. And I just, I go after those deer and I don't hunt them, you know, like, I, I try not to be foolish about it, but I, I also don't wait for anything else. I don't wait for cold fronts. I don't wait for daylight activity. Um, I start hunting because at any given day when that first doe in that buck's core area comes into estrus, he's likely to do something really dumb. Um, and if you're waiting, you might miss that day. Uh, so those are my three, those are the three things I look for. And, and you know, I, I love to hunt and, and I may not be in there on top of one of the bucks that I'm hoping to kill, but I might be hunting does someplace else, you know, waiting for these triggers to light up. You know, and this show isn't just tips and tactics and green lights versus red lights. It's stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I have loved about doing this show, you know, with meeting everybody and, and networking the way we have. It's not just that we're getting valuable information that we can use in the outdoors, but we're getting to know these people on a personal level, and we're we're learning some stories that probably wouldn't otherwise know. Absolutely, and some of those are pretty inspiring. Lee and Tiffany Lukoski, and uh, I think we titled that episode From Dollar Menu to Dominance, based on the way they yeah. were having to live when they first got together and started this venture. That, and it was amazing because, and I had no idea prior to talking to them what their background was. And you hear all the time, and, and I'm sure on social media people see this all the time, you see names like uh, the Mark Juries of the world, Lee and Tiffany Lukoski's and the Lindsay's, and everybody that you know has huge expanses of farms that they can hunt. Well, if I had that property, I could do the same thing too. Well, here's the the interesting thing is that all those people, and especially Lukoski's, their story is amazing. They didn't just get handed all these acres. No. They earned every bit of it, and it was an amazing story. Yeah, and, and we're going to let them tell it themselves because it, it's just something really inspiring, and I think anybody can take a little bit from this and uh, get a little drive out of it. Lee and Tiffany Lukoski. That, to me, is the interesting thing there, Lee. You, you mentioned there a while ago that when you were in high school and college, you were working in an archery shop, you know, um, mm -hmm. working on arrows and bows and all that stuff. And, uh, and it's amazing when you see a couple like you guys and the success and, and the level that you are now that you paid your dues. I mean, you absolutely paid your dues because you started in an archery shop and you worked your way up. Um, it's really interesting yeah. to see how that, that, uh, that entire dynamic took place there. Tell me this. Let's let's kind of transfer over a little bit into talking about um, uh, about your farms and your properties and and planning and and all that sort of thing and, and setting them up for how you have them set up now to be successful in the woods as far as hunting deer and turkeys. And we want to talk about turkey a little mm -hmm. bit here in a little bit. But so for somebody when you, when you first got your start on your own properties, um, I guess when you moved to Iowa, you didn't just all of a sudden have hundreds of acres there. You had to acquire those, I'm sure. Can you kind of walk us through yeah. how yeah, that started? I was, say that. I was just going to say, it's like, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, like, when we moved to Iowa, we didn't have a dime to our name. Our house was in foreclosure, and we basically moved down and lived in a buddy's house for the first year, and let me tell you, it was not all that nice. It <laughs> yeah. was, like, most infested 1970 TV there, and that was it, but you know what? We didn't care. Yeah, we just I was just so happy to be in. Yeah, I mean, we lived both of us lived in Columbia Heights, Minnesota. I mean, it's the first suburb north of Minneapolis, and I was part of Minneapolis. I mean, from my bedroom window, I could see the IDS towers. We I lived in the city, and all I ever wanted my whole life since I can remember was to live in the country and have a you know have a food plot and so I could look at deer and manage deer because that's all I ever wanted. So when I had the opportunity, you know, we I started working as a chemical engineer. We bought our first place down here. It was just two hundred and 
260 acres or something like that. And it was, uh, we got, we got it for like $500 an acre, you know, and I went in with two buddies. So it wasn't like, Hey, we just had a big piece or anything like that. I mean, I mean, it was pretty decent size, but for what we owned, we only owned a hundred acres of it. But, you know, just started right from there, just dozing in food plots. It was a big piece of timber. I mean, it didn't have any fields in it. Yeah, I had nothing. So we just, you know, begged and borrowed and anything we possibly could of neighbors. And I found all discs that were in people's pastures and, you know, just got them to work and, you know, dozed in and, you know, food plots back in there. And that's where we started. This is like the American dream kind of thing. Absolutely. You know what? This is exactly what I was hoping to hear from you guys. Because you know, and, and I just imagined that this was probably something like what you guys went through to get to where you're at. But it's amazing yeah. to hear that you guys basically were essentially you were kind of two city kids that had a dream and, and you just put an incredible amount of effort into making it happen. So, so I would say one of us had a dream, we had a dream and I was like, <laughs> Okay, I I was nice. I'll just come along for the ride and not having any idea what was actually in store for us, but it's been unbelievable. But I'm sure that yeah, that level of support that level of support has to mean a whole lot into getting a, a man to go anywhere with it. I, I don't think without that that he probably would have oh. pursued it. Oh, for sure. You know, we had just gotten married August 21st and August, or 23rd. <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> Lee's in trouble. That's, that's <laughs> twice tonight. Hey Lee, twice Lee, tonight. Hey, hey buddy, it's only two days off. You can so you can bribe you can night. bribe Pro Talk Outdoors, and we can edit that out if you like. Uh, <laughs> she's gonna have that forever <laughs> against you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I got enough swimming around in my brain to think about uh, how the farms and stuff like that doesn't bug me. <laughs> but yeah, on the 23rd of August, by October 1st, I quit my job. You know, as a chemical engineer and you know most you know i called her up and said hey what are you doing you want to go out for lunch and she said well how come you're not at work i said i just quit i just moved down to iowa okay great and that was oh it. my yeah, gosh yeah so i mean we moved down to, to iowa without i didn't have a plan and have a job but you know the thing is you can sit and talk about doing something your whole life and man i man i man someday i'm going to move to iowa someday i'm going to try to get a farm and do something here so, you know, and all of a sudden you look back and you're 80 years old and you know, you never did any of it. And at this point in my life, when that happened, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it because you, you, you're going to sink or swim. The thing is, it's, it's like you're never going to learn to swim. You don't throw yourself in the water. And that was just it. They dive in. I don't know where it's going to go, but I know if I sit at home and keep working, thinking about it, it's not going to happen. So it's like, hey, let's just do it and I'll figure it out as I go. Because if you sit at home trying to make a plan, or it may, it'll never happen. So, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll just keep writing and, and stuff, and I'll just hunt this year, and then I'll start looking for jobs. At least if I was in Monsanto, at, like up in Muscatine, my, I had a uh, – my cousin was like the vice president up there. He was a chemical engineer too, so I could hit him up and try to get a job up in Monsanto up there and or else, you know, Cargill or something. And, and I was still working. Yeah, and she was, you know, flat time. But we didn't have a nickel. I mean, I remember when she was – when she was uh, – we still had our house in Minnesota making payments on that and everything. We didn't live there, you know, so we didn't have a nickel. I remember she'd be like on a trip or something. And I'd try to scrounge up money to go to McDonald's up in Mount Pleasant because they had the dollar menu and I could go get a couple of <laughs> things. I could try to see if I scrounge up $2 and that's not a lie to try to, you know, find something to eat. And, you know, by the end of that year, our house was basically almost in foreclosure up there because we couldn't make payment time. But we already had, you know, Aubrey calls it. Hey, you want to do the show? It's okay, so we, but you have to hunt through the whole year before it even airs and stuff. So you weren't, we weren't getting paid until the next year. So that was another year on top of that after before we, you know, made any money off of it. You know, because you had to, you had to film the whole year and edit the whole year and everything, and had started airing before any sponsors would pay for it so you could make any money. So we went a long time just flat broke, but so just had to keep working every day. You know, hoping that you get someplace. Well, this has been fun, a little unconventional. Uh, just, you know, around this time of year, I guess we get a little sentimental, and obviously things are slower, really. You know, shed hunting or, or frost seeding is about the only thing we have going on. I'm wrapping up radio for basketball. And, and, and Lord knows we want to get out there and do some bass fishing, you know, uh, catch some crappie and stuff. But, well, my gosh, the weather is just not cooperating. You, you need a boat to get out of your house, let alone to find yeah. the water. So. It's, uh, it's been a little rough as far as that goes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it just felt like a good time to get a little reflective and – uh, you know, I guess uh, podcasts don't really move in seasons like a sport or, 
an outdoor activity. But if anything, this is as close to an off-season as we have right now, and, and we're gearing up for, for spring training, man, because I'm super excited to go and shoot a bird with my bow this year. We, that, we've that's got, my number yeah, one goal. We have a lot of stuff coming up. I mean, we'll be doing a ton of fishing. Uh, we're going to do some shed hunting as soon as we can uh, get out there and stomp around, not have to swim through areas, and then, uh, you know, be, get, be getting in the woods, mushroom hunting, and chasing turkeys all over. I mean, definitely, I'm going to be making a trip. I don't know who all's going with me just yet, but I'm going to be making a trip to uh, northeast Nebraska to turkey hunt. We'll be hunting Kentucky and Indiana for sure, and, mm-hmm. and we're going, Tennessee. We're going maybe. to Wisconsin to yeah. smallmouth fish. Yeah, going to do some smallmouth fishing up there, and we got a lot of different things going on, and, you know, just here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be going up to uh, uh, Don's farm, to uh, Don Higgins, to, uh, you know, be there for his uh, Whitetail Masters course. That's uh, really looking forward to that. So we got a lot of stuff going on. we got some, some big names lined up for the podcast coming up really soon. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's a great time for us to transition. We just had a little clip there from Lee and Tiffany Lukoski, and, hey, uh, we're going to be catching up with them here pretty soon as well there's been some discussion about coming on over the next couple weeks and uh may even try to link up with casey ashley or something yeah yeah we get uh casey ashley's gonna come join us on the podcast here shortly as well and and uh talk a little bass fishing a little major league fishing and probably gonna talk a whole lot about the bass master classic because you know we're, we're gonna be talking to him uh one week out of the bass master classic so i'd say about the time that podcast will be airing uh, Casey's probably going to be right in the thick of things there, you know. And that being around Knoxville this year, I'm so that's jealous. not far away at all from Casey's area there. You that's, know, that's true. I and mean, he's that, he's a former champion. He he won there on Hartwell, and you know we talked a little bit about that whenever I caught up with him uh, close to Hartwell, you know, uh, there a couple weeks ago. And I, I got to think that Casey's probably going to be slightly familiar with that area around Knoxville where they're going to be fishing, and if he's familiar with it. I got to give that guy a pretty good heads up that uh, you know he's going to be a contender for sure. Well, we're looking forward to that along with everything else we got going on. We uh, we hope you're enjoying Sportsman's Nation. That's been a great switch over for us as well. Enjoying everything that uh, that they have going on and just being a part of that group. You know, being able to tie our our name to to so many others that are producing good outdoor content. So uh, being on the Sportsman's Nation is pretty neat, and I think we'll be expanding the content there over the year as well. And uh, hey, until next time. Hook them or hunt them. Later, guys.